um, you know that I am way too obsessed with Houston sports. So I grew up in Houston. Uh, and uh, those of y'all who also grew up in Houston, you probably know this. There's something about um, everyone likes to rep their hometown. But there's kind of this like extra special sense of, of like identity that Houstonians share. Because for a long time, like people kind of spit on Houston, you know. And, uh, and so it's kind of like it almost brings us together more, you know. Um, it's like... Oh, yeah, well, we're all... So anyway, so I, I have like this really... Like, I'm really emotionally invested in, in this World Series. So Friday night, I, I stayed up and watched it, and I, my heart was racing the entire time. Like, I literally thought I might go to the hospital. And um, say what? Uh-huh, Aaron. Um, <laughs> hey, I think they need more help in the back. If you... Um, and, uh, and we won. It was awesome. Anyway... And then, you know, last night was, was crazy intense. Also ended up losing, but series is tied 2-2. But then, in the midst of all that, I have a really good friend, one of my groomsmen. He lives in Washington, D.C. now, and he is a trumpet player for the Navy Commodore Band, which is like the premier jazz band of the United States Navy. And, uh, and they were, like, doing a tour, and I haven't seen him in probably, like, four years, and they were doing a tour in, uh, at my home, our home high school auditorium in Katy High School. He, we went there together. We were in band together. And so I was like, well, I haven't seen him in such a long time. I'm going to travel down to Katy. So yesterday morning, after the incredible Friday night's, you know, um, emotional exhaustion, I <clears throat> got in the car and was driving to Katy. Wouldn't you know it, <clears throat> the car breaks down in the middle of I-10 because I have great luck with cars. Two breakdowns on interstates in the past. Anyway, um, so then I'm waiting for like three hours. Tow truck finally comes and gets me, and I uh, um, call my you know dad. I'm 30, and I still have to call my dad, and he came and picked me up. And t- anyway, so what should be a two-hour trip to Katie ended up being like a seven-hour trip to Katie. And then I got home and showered and went to the concert. And of course, he wanted to hang out afterwards because we haven't seen each other in a long time. So we went to uh, his favorite restaurant. It's really funny. It's his favorite restaurant, but he loves it. It's a place called BJ's Brewery. We have one in New Braunfels, too. There's one in Katy, and he, like, is obsessed with it. He loves the pizza. He loves the beer there. So then um, him and I are there, and unbeknownst to me, he called a bunch of our old high school friends that I haven't seen in, like, literally, like, 10 years. And so there's, like, a mini Katy High School band reunion at 11.30 p.m. last night. And so I get home. Way too late. I wake up at 5 a.m. this morning, drive here. I'm, all this to say, I'm really tired. So I'm going to sit down, okay? That's, that's, that was the point of all that. I'm going to sit down. Um, but I, I am still really uh, honored to be up here this morning. And um, I love that we're going to do communion together this morning. And so because of that, we're going to kind of just jump right into this. Because I want to shorten it a little bit so that you can have um, quality time. Um, we're going to invite you to go get your kids if you'd like. And, and we're going to do kind of some family communion time. So we're going to hop right into this thing. And, and this morning, we're going to be talking quite a bit about yeast and bread. Okay? And, and any time I think about yeast and bread, it reminds me of one of my favorite scenes of any TV show ever. So back in the day, before Nick at Night showed Friends just 24-7, they used to show even older, Nickelodeon at Night used to show even older sitcoms. And one that I loved to watch was I Love Lucy. And... Um, and I remember this scene from one I Love Lucy episode that deals with yeast and bread, and oh, it still makes me crack up to this day. So let's, let's cut off the lights. Let's watch that together um, to start this morning on a nice positive note.
All right, so as Scott said, we're working our way through Mark. Uh, We're in Mark chapter 8, verses 11 through 21. A lot of talk about yeast and bread this morning. Um, And uh, as that video kind of showed, yeast is pretty powerful. Something so small can uh, cause a really huge change in composition. Um, So uh, this morning we're going to kind of get... uh, Nate, will you flip those lights on for me? We're going to kind of get, uh, hang with me, we're going to kind of get scolded a little bit by Jesus. But it's going to be really good for us, I promise. Um, so let's start in verses 11 through 21. This is Mark chapter 8, if you want to follow along. When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had arrived, all right, so remember, Jesus just fed another 4,000 people in the Gentile region, and then got in the boat, and he landed on a Jewish seashore, okay? So when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had arrived at this Jewish seashore, um, they came and started to argue with him. Testing him, they demanded that he show them a miraculous sign from heaven to prove his authority. When Jesus heard this, he sighed deeply in his spirit, and he said, Why do these people keep demanding a miraculous sign? I tell you the truth, I will not give this generation any such sign. So Jesus got back into the boat and left them, and he crossed to the other side of the lake uh, again. But the disciples had forgotten to bring any food. They had only one loaf of bread with them in the boat. As they were crossing the lake, Jesus warned them, Watch out! Beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. At this, the disciples began to argue with each other because they hadn't brought any bread. And Jesus knew what they were saying, so Jesus said, Why are you arguing about having no bread? Do you still not understand? Are your hearts too hard to take it in? You have eyes, yet you still don't see, and you have ears, yet you still can't hear? Don't you remember anything at all? When I fed the 5,000 with only five loaves, how many baskets of leftovers did you pick up afterward? Uh, Twelve, they said, right? And when I fed 4,000, just like yesterday, with just seven loaves, how many large baskets of leftovers did you pick up? Seven, they said. Don't you understand yet? Jesus asked them. All right. So going back to the beginning of our story here, right? Jesus arrives on this Jewish um, shore side. And before we even get a chance to like catch our breath or take a breath, right? Here come the Pharisees charging Jesus and they are in attack mode, right? They are trying to bait him. They're trying to um, trick him. And, And really what they're trying to do is make a fool out of him. You have to remember the Pharisees didn't believe that Jesus was actually from God, right? They didn't think he was from Yahweh. So they're trying to like prove to everybody in public there, hey, this guy isn't like, he's a phony, right? And so, and so what they do is they ask him for a miraculous sign from heaven, um, which like, if you think about it is really quite ridiculous. Like literally, Jesus just finished feeding thousands of people with, like, a one family's grocery bag of stuff. He turns it into this miraculous... Twice! He just did it twice! One time he did it with the Jews, and then one time he did it with the Gentiles. And then, not only that, but as we've been reading through Mark, there's been, like, all kinds of signs that he's done. Right? He's been doing stuff constantly. So it's ridiculous that they would ask him for another sign from heaven. And, and you have to remember... The Pharisees, they didn't think all that other sign stuff was worthy of much. You have to remember that they actually thought Jesus was doing, like, signs by the power of the devil, right? Which is just dumb. That's just crazy, right? They thought that's how he was, you know, doing his miraculous signs, was by the power of the devil. So the Pharisees didn't find any of those signs that Jesus had been doing uh, worthy. And so here they are, they're walking up to him with their snarky little grins, and they got their schemes in their head, and they said, hey, yo, Jesus, we need a sign from heaven, 
right? Now, that phrase, sign from heaven, uh, Mark is trying to, to, to have... If you were a Jewish reader of this, that phrase, sign from heaven, would instantly transport you back to the Exodus. So the sign from heaven is like a clear reference to, you know, the ten plagues, right? Think of locusts. Think of parting of the Red Sea. Think of signs like in the wilderness, right? Think of manna from heaven. Those types of like over-the-top Exodus type signs, that's what they were trying to get Jesus to do. And, and, and the reason they wanted this uh, to happen is because, A, like I said, they either wanted Jesus to be showed up as a fake and as a phony, right? Or B, um, they kept trying desperately to fit Jesus into their worldview of what they thought God's Messiah should be like, right? They have this worldview that the Messiah is going to look kind of like this warrior God of Exodus who is going to arrive and do these big billboard type signs. We have fire coming from heaven and it's going to be a great political leader. He's going to unite all the Jews, throw out all of the unholiness of, of the other nations and then take over Rome and hand over control of the land back to the Israelites, back to the Jews. That's what the Pharisees wanted. They wanted Jesus to fit into this very specific worldview. And let's take a quick little sidebar here. It's a good thing we're not anything like the Pharisees, right? And it's a good thing that doesn't apply to us. There's no way that we, you know, can sometimes fall prey to thinking that Jesus is a good Republican or he's, you know, pro this or anti that. Or, like, we don't let our worldviews try to box who we think God's son should be, right? Anyway, um, so, of course, Jesus doesn't take the bait, Okay. Instead, Scripture says that he sighs deeply, which really translated, that means like he's literally sick to his stomach. Like it makes his stomach turn that they're asking him to do this. And so what does Jesus do? He says, uh-uh, nope. And not only that, but then he like storms out, right? It's like a, kind of one of those, I think of, uh, I think of like one of, like a great, um, imagine like this scene of, you know, like um, two people in the marketplace and they're like shouting about something and then one person's like, no, and he slams the door and all the stuff falls off the wall. Like that's kind of how animated Jesus was. He says no and then he literally, they just landed, he gets right back on the boat and he's, he's like, let's get away from here. Right, he storms out. Okay, so family, the Pharisees in this beginning part of our passage, they're going to represent two different things, okay, to the writer of Mark. His name is John Mark. Um, the writer of this gospel, right? So first, the Pharisees are going to represent a posture of unbelief that the character of Jesus is an accurate reflection of the character of God, okay? They're going to represent this posture, this attitude of unbelief, okay? The Pharisees aren't simply doubting Jesus, right? Doubt is actually a very good thing. Doubt means you're act like you're looking for truth. Doubt means that you're willing to change how you think about stuff. They're not doubting Jesus. They strictly refuse to believe that God's character is anything like this Jesus of Nazareth. So because this Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, his character is different than what they thought God's Messiah should look like, they're like, no, there's no way that that's what God's son is like. And secondly, family, the Pharisees are going to represent a posture that is going to refer to, it's the same really as the ancient Israelites in the wilderness. Okay, there's a lot um, in, in the Gospel of Mark, there's a lot of kind of like loaded language that's meant, if you were a reader in the first century, it's meant to bring you back to this idea of the Exodus. There's a lot of the Exodus language happening in, in, in Mark. You know, it's just kind of screaming like, 
you know, Hebrew scriptures, Exodus story. And so, you know, we start with the Pharisees wanting this sign from heaven, which I talked about, right? That absolutely harkens back to the idea of, you know, plagues and Red Sea and clouds of fire and stuff like that. And, and then when Jesus responds to them, he says, you know, no sign will be given to this generation. And that phrase, this generation, is a direct reference to the lost generation of Israelites in the wilderness, right? So remember the Exodus story, right? Maybe you saw that great animated film, Prince of Egypt, right? So you can hopefully remember it, uh, right? God delivers them, right, out of slavery with these incredible signs, and then they're in the wilderness, and they lose faith that God is going to care for them. And there's a whole generation that's lost in Israel's history because of their unbelief. So the first century Jews reading this, they would pick up on all of this Exodus language. And and they would understand that what Mark is trying to say here and what Jesus is referring to is this idea that the same attitude, the same posture of unbelief that plagues the Pharisees, right? We can trace that all the way back to God's chosen people, right? And it's this idea that this problem, this like heart problem, this attitude, this posture of refusing to believe that Jesus is who God really is and God doesn't look like what we want him to look like, right? That's not just a Pharisee problem. That's also a problem for God's chosen people, right? That hits a lot closer to home to us. But it's going to hit even closer to home in just a second because this isn't just about the Pharisees and it's not just about the ancient Israelites, Right? Let's reread the second part of our story, okay, starting in verse 14. But the disciples had forgotten to bring any food. Poor baby. Um, The disciples had forgotten to bring any food. They had only one loaf of bread with them in the boat. And as they were crossing the lake, Jesus warned them, Watch out, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. All right, so this right here is like one of those classic awesome Jesus the teacher things, right? So you have to remember Jesus was a rabbi, right? Like he knew, he, he, he knew his Jewish scriptures. And this is such a classic rabbi thing to do, right? It's take the disciples are hungry somehow in their, I can't say what I want to say there. Somehow they have all this miracle bread sitting around, seven huge baskets full of miracle bread, and they didn't bring any of it onto the boat but one loaf. Like, come on, right? And, and so, of course, they're hungry, and Jesus, like in his amazing way, uses their fleshly, like what's going on in the flesh, and he uses it as a teaching moment, right? I, maybe you guys grew up kind of like me. Um, one of the things that drove me crazy is my parents would always do teaching moments all the time. And it was like the mystic. So my whole family would be sitting in the living room watching a movie. And my dad would get up and pause the movie whenever there was something a little, like, discolored or a little off. And he'd be like, all right, kids, now you know that God wants us to, even though they are, blah, 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 right? It was, and, of course, as kids, we're like, oh, my gosh, just put the movie back on, right? The last, like, what's even crazier is one time, I was, like, 22. I'm, like, a senior in college, and I'm coming home, right? And... Once you're like, you know, an older, once you're an adult, really, I guess, maybe, maybe more in your late, you know, once you're over drinking age, maybe, I don't know. But there's kind of like this shift that happens between you and your parents. It becomes less of like a parent kid thing. And it's more almost of like a, 
I don't want to say peer, but there is a different relationship that you have with your parents when you mature and you get older, right? And it's really funny, though. I'm like 22. I'm watching this movie with my parents, like over Christmas break, and my dad still pauses the movie, and he's like, now you know, Noel, sex before marriage is not God's... I'm like, Dad, I am 22 years old. If I didn't understand that before now, we have much bigger problems to worry about, right? Like, I get it. I'm living through this temptation all the time. I understand, you know, it's so... Anyway... My parents were the kings and queens of teaching moments. It, uh, it drove me nuts. But, you know, it's, it's a good teaching tool. And Jesus uses it right here, right? Um, Jesus makes this statement about the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. And, and this statement is meant to, like, kind of bite right into the brains of the disciples and make them think deeper than what they're currently experiencing. They're, they're, they're hangry. Right? You heard that term, hangry? Right? My wife gets hangry a lot. Okay? And I've, I've had to understand, after being married for five years, oh, I, like, I probably shouldn't have a serious conversation with Kate till we get her some food. Okay? That's just part of her personality. Right? I get uh, tangry. Where I'm, if I'm really tired, don't talk to me. Right? So it's like, I'd much rather talk about this 9 a.m. tomorrow than 11 p.m. at night. But anyway, the disciples were hangry. And Jesus makes this statement trying to get them to think past the flesh and into the deep, deepness of their soul, right? Jesus is such a good rabbi. He uses kind of like this cryptic language. It's like a mystery. It's really awesome, right? And, uh, and we have to remember what yeast represents in the Bible, right, in ancient times. So yeast, or in some translations, it's leaven, right? It's, it's this rising agent, right? It's this thing that you stick into the dough and it makes the bread rise. And, uh, and, and you have to remember that yeast or leaven, it's this really small amount um, and, and you stick it in there and it creates this huge change in the substance of what's going in there. And so in ancient times, yeast or leaven often referred to evil, right? It's this idea that something so small and subtle, right? If it's bad or rotten or spoiled, it can ruin the entire batch of bread, it can ruin everything. It totally changes the composition of the bread, right? And, uh, and so it's used a lot as, as, as kind of, you know, a reference to evil. So naturally in the ancient world, yeast and leaven, they're used to represent evil. And, and it's this small, subtle thing that in the end can ruin an entire life or ruin an entire society. Evil, it can, like the yeast, it can spread and it can spoil everything. So Jesus is warning the disciples against this seemingly subtle but uh, ultimately like incredibly dangerous posture and attitude of the Pharisees and of Herod. And like we talked about, that posture, that attitude is unbelief. Now, in Matthew, in the Gospel of Matthew, we have this same story. Okay? And in, this, in, in Mark, uh, in pretty much all the translations, it says, Beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. Okay? And in Matthew, it has the same story, but it says, Beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Okay? And now that's not a contradiction there, because really they're saying the same thing. Right? Take do a little Jewish history class for a second. So we have to remember the Pharisees were a sect of Jews that were incredibly obsessed with holiness. And they were obsessed with following to the letter of, of the interpretation of God's law. They were like the super right-wing, fundamentalist, ultra-nationalistic sect of, of Jews. And, and the Pharisees did not like the Hellenistic Roman government that was controlling Israel, right? So they wanted a Messiah. They were hoping for a Messiah that would overthrow that and return Israel to kind of like its, its greatness of the past, 
Okay, forever. That's what the Pharisees wanted. And then way over on the other side, we have the Sadducees, otherwise known as the Jews who were cool with Herod. Right? That's why it says, and of Herod. Right? The Sadducees were this sect of Jews, not so concerned with following the law that much. As a matter of fact, they really only read the Pentateuch, the first five books. They didn't care about much of the other stuff. And they didn't really interpret it super strictly. And not only were they cool with Herod, they actually used their status right, to like get in with the government. So the Sadducees were really concerned with using politics and power to influence what was going on and, uh, and to further their agenda, right? So they were kind of more on one side, Pharisees on their side. Seemingly, these two sides have nothing in common. But what binds them together is this posture of unbelief. Both sides had this idea of who God was like. And they did not, they refused to believe that the character of Jesus was in any way related to what they thought God was supposed to be like. They, had, they just refused to believe that Jesus was an accurate reflection of God. So Jesus tells his disciples, guys, beware of this posture of unbelief. Beware of having this attitude of not believing that I am the reflection of who God really is. And then we get to the disciples. What do they say in response? This is so silly. They're like, well, I guess it's because we don't have any bread, right? And Jesus is like, morons! Listen, it's not about the bread, okay? This is a metaphor. He probably didn't actually say moron. I wish he did. Maybe he did. Maybe John Mark was just being nice. But, but the disciples are still thinking about their hunger. They're like, well, I guess Jesus is talking about yeast because we forgot to bring the bread. Like, whose fault was that? James, probably you, right? And Jesus is like, guys, how dull could you be? It's not about the bread. It's not about the bread. Let's pick up our verse again. Jesus says, why are you arguing about having no bread? Do you still not understand? Are your hearts too hard to take it in? Guys, you have eyes, yet you still don't see. You have ears, yet you still can't hear. Don't you remember anything at all? When I fed the 5,000 with only five loaves, how many baskets of leftovers did you pick up afterward? 12, they said. Okay, and when I fed 4,000 with just seven loaves, how many large baskets of leftovers did you pick up? Seven, they said. And Jesus is like, this is not about the bread. Don't you understand yet what's going on? Now, in this scolding from Jesus, it's important that we note that one of these questions, here's a little cool side fact, totally unrelated. But in Mark, there's kind of this, what Mark is doing is he's showing that not only Jesus is the Messiah, but he's doing things of the kingdom in, this, in, in what Mark would say is the correct order. So the reason that there's 12 leftovers and then 7 leftovers, that's not just like a thing. It's very important. The, the first feeding of the 5,000 were to a crowd of Jews. Okay? The 12 leftovers represent, anyone want to take a guess? The 12 tribes. Exactly. It's this idea that not only am I going to provide, but here's leftover for all of the Jewish people. Okay? Then he goes to the Gentile side. This is a little harder. And there's seven baskets of leftovers. Does anyone want to take a guess why seven is an important number in the Gentile world? The Gentile world was known as the land of seven nations. Okay? And so this, the number 12 and the number seven are super symbolic in these two contexts. And so Jesus is like, guys, I went and I did the Jewish thing. There were 12 baskets of leftovers. Then I went and I showed the kingdom to the Gentiles. I'm doing everything that God wants me to do. And I'm doing it in this incredible way. Right? That's a little sidebar. Um, cool little thing there. Anyway. So, um, in this scolding from Jesus, right? Another interesting little sidebar. It's seven questions that Jesus asks them. 
Mark has seven all over his gospel. It's really important, significant to the Gentiles. Um, but in one of his questions that Jesus asks is, you have eyes and you still don't see, and you have ears yet you still can't hear? Now, this phrase is once again a direct reference to the lost generation in Exodus, right? We see this phrase in the Old Testament all over, right? Let's look at prophet Jeremiah. I think it's in chapter 5. Listen, you foolish and senseless people who have eyes but don't, what? And ears but don't, what? Shouldn't you fear me, declares the Lord, and tremble before me, the one who set the shoreline for the sea, an ancient boundary that even the sea can't pass? Though its waves may rise and roar, they can't pass the limits I have set. And yet the people have stubborn and rebellious, what? Hearts. And turn and go their own way. Guys, here's the main point. Jesus is drawing this parallel. He's saying, look, this heart posture, this posture of unbelief that we see in the Pharisees, it was there when I had a chosen people that I just delivered from slavery. And not only that, Jesus goes further and says, it's in you guys too. It's not just a Pharisee thing. It's not just an ancient Israelite thing. You are my disciples, and this is still a posture that is affecting you also. And what that means is that it's affecting us also. We, are, we could read ourselves in this story as the disciples. Now, you may argue with me, Noel, but like I know that Jesus is the true Messiah. He is the reflection of God. Like I believe in Jesus. That's a little unfair to say I have the same you know, uh, attitude or posture. Um, but here's the deal. There are seasons in our life in which we definitely can have kind of this heart posture of unbelief that God is going to care for us. And that Jesus and what Jesus did is a reflection of who God is. Right? This idea that our worldview tries to put God in the box, that affects us too. That affects us too. Even with us knowing the full story of Jesus and knowing what he did, right? We still oftentimes don't trust. We don't truly believe that Jesus is a reflection of God and that how Jesus did things, who he was, merciful, compassionate, provider, right? Loving, intimate. We don't believe that God can be like that to us sometimes. So family, there are seasons in which we aren't going to believe that God is merciful to us or, or, or compassionate to us. And here's another kind of um, thing about me. This one hits kind of close to home. Because for a while, I've been really wrestling with this season that, like, does God really care about me? Like, I am so small and insignificant in the grand scheme of what's going on. Like, I just really don't think God is all that concerned with me. That's something I've been wrestling with for years. Right? I, there's still parts of me, and there's still days when I wake up, and I'm like, okay, I understand that God's supposed to love me, but does he even like me? Or is it kind of like a contractual thing? Like, oh, I guess I have to love Noel, you know? That's something I still struggle with. That is the yeast of the Pharisees. That's the yeast of the Jews of Herod. That's the yeast of the ancient Israelites. After God has shown me so much and done so much, I still sometimes refuse to believe that I can trust God, that I can trust him. So quickly here at the end. Family, how do we guard against harboring this posture of unbelief? Um, I think Jesus gives us some helpful ideas with his series of questions. So let's go through these quickly. Number one, family, we must use our eyes to actually see God. 
right? Jesus says, you have eyes that you don't see, right? We must use our eyes to actually see God. We can see God as revealed in the character of Jesus in Scripture, but also we are a spirit people. So we can see how God is working in us today through the power of the Holy Spirit. But we have to open our eyes to it. Family, I am example, like, numero uno of someone who is so incredibly blind at times. Right? It is, the fingerprints of God are all over this earth. And they're all over your life. I mean, all over it. We are literally drowning in evidence of God's goodness but I am so busy and I put my blinders on and I'm so concerned with the flesh. I'm hungry that I do not see God when it's right there. His fingerprints are all over this. And I think that happens to us a lot. Number two, family, we must use our ears to actually listen to God. And we can listen to him through the words and teachings in our scriptures but also, we're spirit people. We can listen to him in the still voice of the Holy Spirit that still speaks to us today. This one's difficult because our world is so loud. It's noisy all the time. If you have kids, it's like extra noisy all the time. Right? And one of the things that frustrates me the most about God, but I understand, is that God very rarely shouts at you like this. And I think it's because God is really concerned with intimacy. That's what God wants. And if you're at a big party with a bunch of people talking, it's impossible to be intimate with someone shouting over all the noise. What do you do? You go off to a quiet room or you go outside. And so God is constantly talking to us like this. God, I can't hear you. I'm, I'm texting. No, come outside. Right? We got to escape the noise sometimes so that our ears can hear what God's doing today. Number three, last one. Family, we must remember what God has done for us. Right? Jesus says, you have eyes, but you can't see. You have ears, but you don't hear. Do you not remember? It was yesterday that I just fed 4,000 people. I provided plenty of food, and you guys are worried that you're not going to eat today? Right? We have to remember what God has done for us. Right? We remember what he's done by reading the scriptures. That's the story of what God has done for us. But also, we're spirit people. So there's evidence that God has done stuff in our life. He did stuff yesterday. He did stuff 30 minutes ago, but we forget about it all the time. I forget about it all the time. You can ask my wife. I am like, I think I, I um, maybe I'm a little bit of a pessimist or, or, you know, as millennials say, we're cynical or whatever. Um, and it's hard for me to even remember how God took care of me yesterday. And I get overly concerned with making the mortgage payment next week. Not remembering that God literally just provided for my family this morning. Right? And I'm not a journaler, and I probably should be. And if you're not a journaler, I'm going to encourage you maybe to become a journaler. Because then you can write down, this is what God has done for me. And then maybe whenever you're going through those seasons of forgetting, even though it just happened yesterday, oh, I see it. Yeah, God did that. Okay, I remember. I remember. I believe. I believe. I remember. So I think a really natural way to end this morning is to focus on that remembrance. And we're going to do that um, by partaking in communion at the Lord's table. So here's what we're going to do. I would love, if you want to do this as a family unit, I would love for you to do that. So feel free to go grab your kids. If you're like, you know what, don't know if my kids can handle, you know, this for a little bit, that's totally fine too. But if you want your kids to be a part of this, take like 30 seconds, go grab them real fast and get together. And I'll explain what we're going to do. You're just going to go as a family unit, or if you're not going to do it with your family, get together with your, you know, with your 
family in Jesus, in Christ, and um, serve each other the elements. Help each other remember, this is the body of Christ. Remember what he did for you. This is the blood of Christ. Remember what he did for you. Right? And then I have a series of questions that can just help spark conversation if you want. Right? Really easy. Question number one. Where have you seen the fingerprints of God in your life lately? Number two. What have you heard God saying to you? And number three. What do you need to remember that God has done for you? Okay? Super simple questions. You can take them however you want to. You can, you know... Revise them. Whatever works for the Spirit working in your conversation, that'd be awesome. But I think there's something incredibly powerful about remembering right now, this morning, um, who God is as reflected in the character of Jesus. And what better way to do that than remembering his death, his resurrection at the Lord's table. Okay? So go get your kids if you'd like and have conversation 10 to 15 minutes. I love you guys. Thank you so much for this morning. And um, have a good rest of your Sunday.